If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever since I got off the line with a medical worker named Ahmed Aldabais, I can't stop thinking about just how long it's going to take Turkey and Syria to recover from the earthquakes they've been suffering. Ahmed lives in one of the hardest-hit regions with his family, and he's used to emergencies. He helped build medical infrastructure in Syria during the war. He was actually doing the same thing in Ukraine when the ground began to shake. He found out what was going on because his 14-year-old daughter, Noor, FaceTimed him in a panic at four in the morning. And she clicked, Baba, uh, quick, and we are now out the home and the building moved now. Look, and she moved camera to the building and trees and uh, some is moving. So you saw the earthquake because it was a video call. Yes, and she told. I told her, you you're joking? It, it, it not really. It took days for Ahmed to make it back to Turkey. He took a bus and a train and a plane, and when he arrived he realized his family had changed. His wife and four children were healthy, but they were terrified. You know, three days, the shelter was in the car. Three days, they drink and eat and everything in the car because the weather is very cold. Yani it was minus two or three in the night. Well, hold it. Just so, just so I understand, you said they spent three days in the car and you have four children some of them quite grown, 14 years old, and a wife. So five people living in a car? I don't even know how you, I guess everyone just sits up and then maybe takes turns lying down. Yes. Ahmed's first priority was getting the family into stable shelter, a hotel. But that wasn't easy. His family didn't want to go. Thank God that they escaped and they are safe, but you know, the mental condition and they are not very good you know all time they thinking that building move Ahmed's is just one small story of what the earthquake took a home but also something more profound a sense of safety Louisa Lovelock from the Washington Post has been collecting stories like Ahmed's she's reported on the refugee crisis here for almost a decade when she heard about the disaster one of the first things that struck her was how bitterly unfair it was. People who I've been speaking to for, I mean, I think seven years now, were my first calls because you would realize that these were all people who had found safety in Turkey. People who had basically just rebuilt their life and even started going into, I was just speaking to someone this morning who had just started chemotherapy. He'd had cancer for, for a long time. And he'd finally had the money to go into treatment. And on the day of the earthquake, he was meant to go in for his first session. He hasn't had it. He doesn't know where he's now going to find the money to do it. And so that that chance of, you know, whatever the chemo would have given him, 
is, is gone. If there's one thing Louisa wants you to remember, it's that the earthquake was not just a geological event, and its impact will linger. We talk about aftershocks from, from these earthquakes, and there are many physical aftershocks in terms of the earth physically moving. But the aftershocks that are going to follow are going to be the ones that live with people more. It's going to be, you know, what happens to politics and how that changes their lives. It's going to be what happens to their economic situation, you know, what decisions they therefore have to make about where they live. If you had to guess or make an estimate, how many years do you think it's going to take for Turkey and Syria to recover from the earthquakes they've been suffering this month? Oof, I mean, too many. Not years that, that these countries have. Today on the show, the long road ahead for the people of Turkey and Syria. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When I reached Louisa Lovelock, another earthquake had just shaken Turkey and Syria. This one with a magnitude of 6.4. The combined death toll of the initial quakes and the constant aftershocks had already surpassed 46,000. And as she'd driven through this region, Louisa had chronicled a palpable anger in the disaster survivors. So I asked her to start by explaining how this fresh quake might impact the people she'd visited over the last couple of weeks. Well, I think the big impact that it has is it further damages the structural integrity of buildings, which were already seen as unsafe. You know, it puts, it maybe means that there's now going to be a longer lag time on getting people back into their homes, if it's possible to get them into their homes. And as the other aftershocks had done to a lesser degree, it compounds the mental health crisis that will follow. And the one thing we know about the aftermaths of disasters like this is that the mental health toll is always huge. It's incredibly difficult to to measure. It's incredibly difficult to really ever have the resources to provide for to the extent that they need. But it's the longest legacy that exists. You know, people in Turkey, they were woken probably from the sort of safest place it is possibly to be mentally to find that everything was was crashing down around them. So not only are a lot of people now saying that it's just impossible to sleep because on that one night when they put their head down on the pillow, they woke up to find sometimes relatives dead in their bed with them. They woke up to find that they'd been separated from other family members who are in the house where stuff had maybe fallen in between them. 
So that's one layer of it. You then have the fact that people are incredibly scared that after hundreds of aftershocks and a second earthquake or a third earthquake, their houses may fall down on them in the future. So as you say, they're sleeping in their cars. It is incredibly cold in those areas. People are are sleeping in layers upon layers. And if you think about how uncomfy it is, even if you just go camping and sleep on a, a camping mattress, people are lying on car seats, which are not meant for this. Again, not sleeping because they're in pain, because they have injuries, not sleeping because it's just incredibly uncomfortable, not sleeping because they don't have enough food or water in the car, and then not sleeping because on top of everything else, on Feb 6th or Feb 5th, they went to sleep and they woke up and, as one woman said, it felt like the world was ending. Yeah, you told this one story that was so heartbreaking of a Syrian refugee who was rescued but was angry, was like, put me back, I want to be with my family. And you just realize how desperate and awful someone must feel to have that kind of reaction. And it's been interesting as a reporter going around because we we're used to, you know, I cover a lot of conflict and I've spoken to people very frequently in the tragic aftermath of a an airstrike or a car bomb and all of these terrible things where where there is a reason for what has happened. You can it, it's in some ways slightly easier to conceive because you you know that X person did Y to Z person as such. And, and in this case, you know, people are having these reactions when to them it's like there's not even anything to explain what happened to them, right? That one minute they were sleeping, the next minute the earth moved and this happened. And they have lain often for days in the rubble without being helped. Um, I spoke to a number of people who had been in that situation and, you know, and I sort of was reading an interview with a woman recently who basically said, you know, I knew that as soon as I was out, that was the last time I was ever going to be with them. I felt that the only agency I had in this matter was to stay. But of course, the rescue efforts are aimed at saving. Um, and she was, I mean, she was devastated. For Turkish and Syrian civilians, what compounds all this tragedy is knowing that what happened might have been preventable, at least somewhat. That's because everyone knew this region was earthquake-prone. You, know, you have people who will talk about how they would look at the map. They would look at the, the sort of the maps showing tectonic plates, and they always knew that something was going to come. And as a result, you had all of these regulations that the government would introduce to try and make these buildings safer. But when the earthquake struck in early February, what we learned is that these codes often hadn't been followed at all. And most people I spoke to in Turkey had a story about the corruption, about the kickbacks that were offered to people, to, to government officials, to let them build buildings that effectively were structurally unsound. Tell me one of those stories. Well, the, the, the building that this man had lived in was, um, it had a shop on the first floor. And, you know, I, I can't speak to the veracity of the allegations, but what everyone was saying is that the shop on the first floor had paid local officials to turn a blind eye so they could take out all of the load-bearing columns in the store. So when the earthquake actually happened, the floors of the upper apartments had all just slipped inwards and into the store. Oh, my gosh. This man was meant to be in the house that night. He happened to be with his mother-in-law because she was unwell. So he was back watching his neighbours being pulled out. We met lots of other families doing the same. And they were all saying the same thing. You know, why was that shop allowed to exist? 
The criticism about building codes has gone all the way up to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Can you explain why? Like why it goes all the way up to him? Well, there are several factors here. One is the simple fact of the enabling environment that, you know, allegedly involved a lot of corruption. There is also the fact that his government passed an amnesty for building developers who had who who had faults in in the buildings and there was a period several years back where if you paid a fine you were you were forgiven that and so these buildings were effectively allowed to keep standing with legal sanctionings but what's happened since then is that the government of Erdogan has cracked down on a number of developers people have been arrested and the concern now is that that is that is cosmetic action right that is a way of distancing the problem from from his authorities that is saying it is someone else's problem it is these bad these naughty developers who did these terrible things when actually it was the government that was turning a blind eye and it was the government who ultimately was forgiving these irregularities when they arose huh the earthquake as we've been talking about took place in a border region so it impacted both turkish people and syrian people and of course syrians were already living through a brutal civil war And this anger we've been talking about, it seems through your reporting, like it's it's activated all of these simmering feelings between Turkish people and Syrian people. Because, of course, for years, Syrians have been coming across the border, seeking refuge in Turkey, you know, asking for things. And, you know, some Turkish people have felt put upon. So can you describe how you've seen those relationships shifting in the days after the quake? Yeah, I mean, we talk about aftershocks, and this is another of them. You know, how relationships between Syrians and Turks are are changing. This is not a new phenomenon, as you say. This has been years in the making. A lot of Turks have felt that they were that the government was very generous to let so many Syrians come into the country. But over time, as resources have grown scarcer through an economic crisis, they have grown increasingly resentful sometimes to the sort of Syrians in their midst who themselves don't really have homes to go back to. And now come the earthquake when when everyone is affected, you're seeing a lot of Turks starting to feel frustrated, perhaps, that the Syrians are also those among the people receiving aid because they will say, well, hang on, this, this is our tragedy. We don't have the resources. We don't have the time and we don't have the space to deal with, with another population. But then you talk to a lot of Syrians and they have terrible stories, frankly, about what they describe as the prioritization of Turks in the aid effort of being systematically denied aid in recent weeks because they were Syrian. They are sort of spoken down to at best. Some have described being beaten um, or sort of temporarily detained at worst. And as this is going to become a more and more serious situation in, in the months to come, you know, people are going to be incredibly stressed. They're going to have very little to go around. It's very difficult to see this not getting much worse. Yeah. I mean, you described this scene in Turkey with Syrian refugees angrily watching rescue workers because, of course, in Syria, they were used to bombardments collapsing their buildings and got used to clearing rubble quickly and sort of saw this and said, like, we would have taken care of it in two days. And so it was so interesting to me to see the kind of ping-ponging of the anger back and forth when there's this gigantic tragedy where, you know, everyone is stretched everyone is impacted. I think that's very perceptive. Like you say, everyone is stretched. Uh, One of the things that I found probably the most 
striking that I saw um, was Syrians returning to Syria. Sometimes Syrians who have been gone for 12 years, 10 years, uh, the border crossing with Syria that I was at had been closed for a number of years. You know, it hadn't been possible to go back. And when I got there a couple of days ago, hundreds of them were queuing up. They had all of the possessions they had left, all of the possessions that they had um, rescued from, from houses that had been devastated in the earthquake. Hmm. But what are you going back to? Well, often, very little. You know, it became very clear speaking to these people that they hadn't, even though things were not good for them in Turkey prior to the earthquake, they had not been planning on doing this. This is a sort of, you know, this is a, an option of last resort. And there was one guy who was going with his family back to a displacement camp on the other side of the border. And I said, well, do you know where it is? Do you, do you have a tent? And he said, well, well, well no, I, we, you know, we, we don't really have a map. Our phones don't work. We were just hoping to get directions when we got there. And I think my mother is there, but I haven't spoken to her in two months. I haven't spoken to her since the earthquake. And so they were just going on a wing and a prayer with nothing left in Turkey. Their house was destroyed. He'd said he'd been denied 10 months wages by a Turkish boss who wouldn't pay. Um, his life was over, but he didn't know what he was going to on the other side. After the break, why it took so long for international aid to simply cross the border into Syria. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. With so many Syrians deciding these earthquakes have made life in Turkey unsustainable, Louisa Lovelock wondered, what will these people find? once they cross back into their home country, a place that's been ravaged by a 12-year civil war. So she decided to cross into Syria herself and take a look. She started by going to one of the few border crossings that's open, Bab al-Hawa. It's, I mean, it's just a road. It's just a road with some big bars across it, which open or close. There are some little shacks which sell tea. They sell, you know, little cakes in plastic wrapping. And when I was there, it was just hundreds of people were wrapped in every layer they have. They had sacks full of clothes, rugs. Some of them had wrapped up carpets, these being the things that they could they could bring with them and they could physically carry across the border. 
But the problem with this border since the earthquake has been that the road was incredibly badly damaged. So you had the situation where there was only one crossing that you were allowed to, to take aid through. And then you couldn't even access that crossing because of the damage from the earthquake. And this really is, you know, is what happens when aid access to a place is limited, when it funnels down to just one and there is an act of nature like the one that we saw, you risk cutting off the area entirely. Yeah, I've seen so much outrage with the UN for not acting faster to open up more supply routes in response to the earthquake. And in fact, one of the UN's top officials said that the UN had failed the people of northwestern Syria. Why did that happen? How did this get tangled up in politics? Well, so the United Nations operates in any country with the permission of of the government there. So the Syrian government would have to say, yes, you can you can operate, you can move. That means Bashar al-Assad. It means Bashar al-Assad. And in varying degrees, that works in peacetime. But in civil war, effectively, you know, they are asking Assad if they can take aid into opposition areas, areas that the government from the earliest days perceived as, as hostile to them. And it's very simple. The government can say yes or no, because it is literally required to sign off on where aid convoys go and what they take with them. Now, 12 years in, all sides have weaponized aid. It is not the case that is only the Assad government that does it. And, you know, a lot of people have argued, including former UN officials, that because the UN didn't stand up and criticize this or complain robustly from the earliest days of the war, they have allowed themselves to be weaponized, right? They have allowed themselves to become tools for Assad's government. So what does that look like once you go into Syria? You say the aid's been weaponized. I know that you were able to go back and forth. What did you see? I mean, what that looks like in the context of an earthquake is in the early days, pretty much nothing entering. And that means that people are sleeping in orchards because they don't have tents. That means that people don't have enough rescue equipment to to dig people from the rubble. There was one ambulance with flashing lights waiting to cross into to Syria the first time we went through. Um, I asked later, what that was for. One of the officials suggested that it might have been a, a medevac for a severely injured person. But when you consider that one of the towns I went to had 1,200 people pulled from the rubble in a number of days, what is one medevac? What is one ambulance? It, it's nothing. I mean, they really, it felt isolated and largely abandoned. When you went to the hospitals or talked to the healthcare workers in Syria, what did they tell you? Well, after 12 years of war, these are places that have had their capacity severely hampered. So they're used to working with very little. They're used to working with very little. But particularly in this case, someone said to me, you know, they were the the victims and the rescuers at the same time because the earthquake had affected everyone. They themselves were worrying about their families as these casualties were flooding in. There were people who were learning literally midway through through surgeries that relatives had lived or died. Um, A couple of surgeons told me that from the kind of earliest hours, they basically started taking medication to keep them awake because they knew they were going to be awake for days, not, you know, not shifts, like full days at a time. And in one of the hospitals I went to, they said that the number one surgery they had done were, were amputations. That was the main procedure that they were doing because the hospitals have such limited capacity that only the most severely wounded were coming. 
And you reported about how they were amputating children. And a lot of times they didn't have family necessarily nearby, which was so heartbreaking. One of the things that some of the the aid workers were saying to us is that it was really hard sometimes to, to even understand if a child was now an orphan or not. Often they were too young or too traumatized to even really be able to explain who they were. So putting that information together with what they knew about the dead was difficult enough. Northwest Syria is an area to which people have fled from all across the country, fleeing the the government, people who don't want to be under the control of Bashar al-Assad's government. As a result, there aren't proper records anymore, really, for who lives where. So putting the pieces together for who was an orphan, who might be an orphan, who's, you know, it, it was nigh on impossible in those early days. Eventually... President Assad did agree to open two more border crossings from Turkey, right? Are you optimistic that that will have an impact on the people still in Syria? I mean, more aid is is never a bad thing. But at the end of the day, the scale of the needs is just immense. We talk about people being in tents now, you know? On my first trip into Syria, we saw all of these people sleeping out in the orchards, Four days later, when I returned, a lot of them were in tents. And so theoretically, aid has arrived. So that's progress in a way. That's progress. But they're still sleeping in tents, you know? I just don't see where the rebuilding happens now. Because entire areas of of certain cities have now been completely leveled. If you look at the city of Aleppo, an aid worker said to me that after the conflict there, it already looked like there had been an earthquake there prior to the earthquake. These are places for which the resources and the political will have not existed to rebuild even before the earthquakes. I'm curious how you think the earthquake could reshape the region moving forward. Because we've talked about Syria and Turkey, how there's anger in Turkey against Erdogan because of these building codes. But then in Syria, it seems to me like President Assad has almost strengthened his hold in that the U.N. had to negotiate to get extra border crossings open, and now more people are coming back to Syria. And I just don't know what that all means politically for what happens now, because it seems like a complete reshuffle. I think with Syria, Assad is now in a better position than he's been in a long time. Twelve years into the war, you've had this whole process where particularly Western governments entirely cut him off. They put him under sanctions. They, he was persona non grata in Western capitals. They did not want to deal with him. But as the war dragged on, those governments have effectively kind of moved away from their commitment to, to the armed opposition. They no longer believe that it is winnable by anyone other than Assad. But there was nothing to propel them forward. There was no event that was going to sort of turn the table enough that diplomatic relations would resume. And I think there are very real questions now where after all of this time, this earthquake will be the thing to cement his return to the world stage. Certainly, he would be seen as someone who has been a dictator, someone who's been responsible for the deaths of many hundreds of thousands of his civilians. But he would still be there. He would still be someone that organizations are dealing with. And for him, that's a huge change from where it looked like he might be six years ago. You know, like when it when it happened, when the earthquake happened, I you just kind of didn't know what to say, right? Like this part of the Middle East through 
politics and now through geography has suffered so much. And we always say, how much more can a people take? How much more can a country take? And driving through Syria and to this town, Jenderis, and just hearing what people had to say about how it was four days and nights before the voices stopped coming from under the rubble, when there was really no help coming to save them. Um, I think it really summed up how, in many cases, the people of Syria have been left to their own, you know, to pick up the pieces. They've been isolated, abandoned, um, and often forsaken. Louisa, I'm really grateful for your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Louisa Lovelock is the Baghdad bureau chief for The Washington Post. Dr. Ahmad Aldabais, who you heard at the top of the show, is the operations director and disaster management team leader for UOSSM, the Union of Medical Care and Relief Organizations. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter, say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow. It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil and Body Butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the Best Sellers Body Care Set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER.